This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, investigative journalist Amelia Pang reports on labor camps in China used to produce U.S. consumer goods. Her book, Made in China, A Prisoner and SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. She's interviewed by Yan Bennett of Princeton University's Center on Contemporary China. So uh, thank you today uh, for coming today, Amelia. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your book and what motivated you to write it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, So the book starts in 2012 um, when an American woman named Julie Keith opens up this brand new package of Halloween decorations from Kmart. Mm-hmm. And out falls an SOS letter that's handwritten by the political prisoner in China who had made and packaged this very product. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book follows his story, how he ended up in a labor camp. And it also zooms out to examine some of the issues in our supply chain and um, the really flawed ways that a lot of corporations are auditing their Chinese factories. Mm-hmm. It looks at all the different factors that contributed to making it really easy for something that was made in a labor camp in Downing, China, to end up selling at a Kmart in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us some reasons why people are locked up in China and how they end up in uh, these forced labor prisons? Yes, um, a lot of these people are political prisoners, like civil rights lawyers, pro-democracy activists, um, religious activists, like the underground Christians, the Falun Gong group, um, Tibetans, and and a lot of ethnic minorities, such as Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities. Um, And there's also some petty criminals as well. A lot of these people are haven't necessarily committed any kind of violent or real crime per se. These Mm -hmm. are people the Chinese government would like to silence and help them and try to push them to assimilate more to um, whatever the Chinese policy is at the moment. So you would call them prisoners of conscience, right? Yes, a lot of them are prisoners of conscience. Mm-hmm. So um, I was wondering if you could tell our American audience about the conditions for these prisoners in these camps and um, uh, in prisons. Um, I think some of us may be under the impression that these uh, Chinese prison uh, labor prisons are the same as American prisons that produce uh, license plates, for example. Right, right. That's a very good point. Um, of course, we do have a lot of American prisoners make, uh, working for companies as well. And mm-hmm. that is a whole other issue and <laughs> not exactly innocent either. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the scale is much larger in China and the, and the conditions of the prisons are worse because historically these original camps were based off of Soviet gulags. Um, mm-hmm. There are places where people are tortured um, and the conditions are um, very, very grueling sometimes they have to work 15 hours a day, up to 24 hours a day mm-hmm. um, to, to meet production deadlines. Um, these, um, you know, it's, it's very, it's the, as bad as American prisons are, these places are actually worse. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in your book that Sun Yi is uh, the story that you follow. Um, 
he had to endure um, forced feedings. He didn't get enough to eat. Um, he slept, I, I think it was uh, six to a bed at one point, um, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, right. Um, one of the ways that they tried to force someone to give up their religion, and this was Sunni's case, was to um, have them sign papers to, to, to say that they had given up their religion and you know, they had completely given up their faith. And if they mm -hmm. refused to sign it, they would either not be given enough food or what well, I think one of the things that Sunni did was to do um, a hunger strike to mm -hmm. uh, stand up against his treatment. And he went quite a long time without eating to, to the point where he started to lose, um, become severely mentally ill and mm -hmm. um, severely malnourished, could barely move. Um, so the, he, he was tortured pretty badly um, in, the, in the camp. Wow. Um, so you mentioned that you started following the story in 2012. So can you talk about the state of prison um, labor camps today? It has changed very much and actually gotten worse today with um, the expansion of the Uyghur re-education camps and the, the mass transfer of the Uyghurs to factories outside of Xinjiang through the Uyghur labor transfer program. So um, could you talk a little bit more about the re-education camps in Xinjiang, uh, which I've heard has been determined as the largest mass internment of a minority since World War II? Um, and so, and the reaction of governments to that, I know that the United States has come out, or at least the US Congress has come out condemning this, um, the, the practice in China. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, it is truly a very disturbing development. Um, what's happening to the Uyghurs right now actually qualify, uh, it actually meets the UN's definition of genocide Mm -hmm. A lot of times in the camps and even outside of the camps, they are forced to have undergo forced sterilization, forced abortions, and these kinds of procedures. It actually led to an 84% decrease in the population of two of the largest Uyghur prefectures in China. Wow. And that 84% decline happened in 2015 to 2018 alone, just those years. It's really a pretty significant decline, and it meets one of the five UN criteria for genocide, which is um, suppression of birth. Mm -hmm. So I believe the um, U.S. Congress also came out in December saying that this was officially a genocide. Is that correct? Yes, yes, the U.S. government was um, the first to say that. Yeah. So also in uh, December, uh, the EU and China recently agreed to conclude a, an investment agreement. Um, they haven't actually signed it yet. Um, so China has stated it will try to um, make continued and sustained efforts to ratify international conventions on banning forced labor, um, of which uh, the EU has two conventions, the forced labor convention, the abolition of forced labor. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to China's past commitments, if they have made any, and what you think about the EU investment agreement and enforcement of you know, the ban on forced labor. I personally do not think there's much evidence to, to believe that China will really hold up their word this time. Mm -hmm. In the past, looking at past 
Chinese and U.S. agreements, um, China has not held up their word, their end of the agreement. Um, for example, as early on as the early 90s, um, the U.S. government had a memorandum of, of understanding with China, which would um, essentially mean that China must stop exporting forced labor or any kind of prison labor goods hmm. to the U.S. and give the U.S. the ability to go and inspect the prisons to make sure that they are not exporting to the um, exporting these products. Um, but in reality, as we know, these kinds of products are still entering our stores and our borders. And the reality is a lot of times um, Customs and Border Patrol is not allowed to go and inspect these facilities the mm -hmm. way that in the agreements they, they say they can. Mm -hmm. So I, I am not confident that China has, will do anything differently this time with the EU. Okay. So, um, so both the EU and the United States have bans on importation of goods made from forced labor. So I, you speak a little bit about this in your book. How good are governments in enforcing these bans? They're not very good because it's very hard to get hard evidence. Mm -hmm. And and there's you know reasons for that. You don't want to accidentally ban um, a factory that isn't using forced labor. You want to be mm -hmm. fair. But I mean, it is it, it is truly difficult to get eyewitness accounts for a lot of these cases, mm -hmm. um, especially in Xinjiang right now. Auditors can't. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about how auditors can't even go there now to independently investigate. How mm -hmm. do you get? hard evidence that, um, or any kind of evidence and how these factories are actually making the products. But without the evidence, then it's really hard to, to issue a ban. Um, this actually didn't make it into the book in time for the deadline, but the ban on certain regional products in Xinjiang was pretty a significant development. Mm -hmm. It hadn't happened before in the history of um, uh, CBP, uh, Customs and Border Patrol policies. And it's a very positive step. The banning of all tomato products and all cotton products from Xinjiang. Can you go into a little bit about how the, well, the process that auditors have are, and the obstacles and impediments to them actually finding out the truth uh, in China? Yes, yes, that is a big topic. There's a whole chapter in my book just about that. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, there are many different kinds of audits. Um, if a company says, oh, we did an audit and we found no evidence of forced labor here, that doesn't mean anything because what kind of an audit did they do? There are standard audits that might cost a couple hundred dollars. Those typically, those typically check for very surface level things like cleanliness of the factory, the, how good the equipment is, um, how good the products are, those kind of basic things. They don't even, they often don't even interview the workers. They can't detect something as complex and hidden as kind of illegal and hidden subcontracting to labor camps. Mm -hmm. So if a standard, if their standard audit did not find evidence of forced labor, that doesn't mean anything. Um, there's another kind of audit that would cost around $1,000 or more where they do interview the workers and they look at wage documents and things like that. But 
those cost a lot more. And I don't know how many companies are actually doing those kinds of audits. Um, but even those I've, I've heard from Chinese auditors um, have, a, have a hard time proving that these hidden subcontracts or labor, forced labor is happening. And then you have another tier of audits that cost $5,000 and take about five days to do. And they, they really, they're very thorough. They cross analyze um, the wages of multiple departments in that factory to really, to see if they're really, if there's any inconsistencies about how much they're producing and how much they're paying workers. Um, and I've heard from Chinese factory auditors that that might be one of the only ways to detect um, illegal and, and all the, unauthorized subcontracting to forced labor. Um, but how many companies are realistically paying $5,000 per audit for all of their factories? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big problems with the auditing system. Um, and another big problem is that um, audits, who designs the audits? The audits are designed to essentially help the corporation look good um, mm -hmm. in times of crisis. Say, oh, look, we did our checks and this is, you know, we've done everything we can to prevent forced labor. But it's not really designed to actually really detect forced labor in the supply chain. So um, also in that uh, chapter, you talk about how there's an entire cottage industry of uh, that makes fake receipts, essentially, and fake records and, you know, um, counterfeit you know, um, the, the things that you stamp to, to go in and out. I forget what those are called. Yeah. Like there's fake timesheet records. Time sheets, that's it. Yeah. That they will, that companies will sell to the factories and, mm -hmm. and they were, unfortunately, a lot of these are made by former auditors. So they know exactly what the auditors are looking for and how to fool mm -hmm. them. Um, and it's, it's terrible. So that makes it, extremely difficult to detect um, hidden subcontracts in the in the factories. Um, but we also have to look at why are factories turning to, you know, these kinds of illegal companies to, mm -hmm. to fake their records. A lot of times it's because they cannot realistically make the products for that cheap of a, of a price and mm -hmm. for that short of a deadline. Mm -hmm. Um, and that comes back to how com companies are sourcing the products, their business practices, which also goes back to consumers. You know, we reward the companies who can offer the cheapest prices for the latest trends. And mm -hmm. so the production deadlines are just getting shorter and shorter and people are demanding cheaper and cheaper prices. And that is fundamentally unsustainable. Okay. So what can we do as consumers to purchase ethically? You know, it's a question I've thought about a lot. I wish we could say that there's just one company, that <laughs> specific company or a specific type of product that's guaranteed to not have any kind of forced labor in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. I'm finding that harder and harder to say because you know, right now the Uyghur labor, Uyghur re-education camps are seeing them making all kinds of products from the human hair extensions that's getting popular these days. Oh, wow. Even the raw materials for solar panels. It's just, it's such a wide range of products. Um, so I think ultimately what we can do as educated consumers is mm. the next time we go shopping online at our favorite brands, Take a moment 
to stop and look at their sustainability page or their corporate social responsibility page. Most companies these days have either one or both of these, these pages and see what it says. Mm -hmm. Made in China is about educating consumers how to analyze those pages. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, you know, the company might list a list of their factories and to someone, to the unknowing consumer, that might seem really sustainable and very mm -hmm. transparent, but it's really not enough for a company to simply name the, the names of their factories. They have mm -hmm. to start showing how are they auditing their factories? How are they really, how much effort are they really putting into making sure that they are not encouraging their factories to use forced labor by offering them such cheap prices. You mm -hmm. know, they really need to start revealing how much are they paying these factories? And are, is, is, can that realistically support the, the wages for that county or that city? Um, and if not, uh, maybe we as consumers need to be willing to pay higher prices or buy less products. Um, mm -hmm. Just, it's just unsustainably cheap, um, a lot of these products are. Okay. So um, I know that you're a new parent, and I'm a parent of two girls, and they're growing. <laughs> I just bought, you know, I don't know, half a dozen new pants for my daughter. And, you know, that's the thing. It's I'm constantly buying things as a parent. So how do we balance this as, you know, as consumers in America? We, we need a lot of products, you know, a lot of cheap products. Um, yet we want, you know, I don't want products that are made by prison labor, you know? Absolutely. Um, it's, that's a great question. We, we do need to buy a lot of things and not everyone can afford to buy everything from um, a locally made source or mm -hmm. a lot of times you can't even buy everything from a local shop like that. Um, so you do have to buy some made in China products at least. Um, I think the issue is not necessarily about avoiding. I think the, the solution is, is not necessarily about avoiding all made in China products or avoiding all of one particular company, but really encouraging our companies to really improve the way that they source from these factories and using our dollars to support the factories that start to change mm -hmm. and encourage that kind of a shift in, in business. Mm -hmm. So what are some companies doing, the ones that operate in China? What are they doing to try and, and regulate this or at least, you know, pro prohibit um, subcontractors, for example, from coming in to, and providing products that are made with prison labor? I don't think they're doing much at the moment <laughs> because That's nobody sad. has them to up until this point, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm really hoping to change the conversation, just start a new conversation about what transparency actually means. Okay. So um, I thought it was really interesting in, in the book, in the chapter, Desire and Denial, you talk about the ethical dilemma um, this poses to consumers and the, and the processing of complex ethical dilemmas neuro neuro neurologically. Can, can you talk about that? I thought that was fascinating. Thank you. Yes. We, Everybody buys cheap things. I've mm -hmm. bought a lot of cheap things in my lifetime. And we really, um, it makes us really, psychologically, it makes us really happy whenever we see a big discount. And whenever we feel like we're getting a big discount. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think being aware of some of these processes um, when you're buying can help mm -hmm. you can help you refrain from just simply buying things because it's cheap. And it, mm -hmm. it can help you to think, um, to put more thought into whether you actually need a product um, or if you already have a similar version of this. They, you know, it's it just, it can lead to a lot, to more thoughtful consumption. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I interviewed a psychologist who actually talked about there being a certain threshold if you hear about something that is disturbing enough about a particular brand or product, then at, the, at a certain point, the cheapness of the price no longer is so desirable anymore. You can't, you can't overlook it at a certain point. And I think with all the information we're finding out about the, the Uyghur re-education camps um, and its associations with a genocide, um, I think it's going to be the start of a, a shift in our wider consumer culture where we, we, we start to care less about the cheapness of the price. Mm. Uh, very good. So um, I just want to go back to Sunny's story. Um, so one of the changes that came out about um, his SOS letter, it got out into the news in Oregon. Um, and across the, the globe. Um, so one of the changes China did was to rename the re-education camps to compulsory isolation detox centers, right? So can you talk a little bit about what, you know, the Chinese, how the government in China is complicit with, you know, this whole prison labor system and how it's uh, reinforcing it in a way? Yes, they've, they've, if they've, the re-education through labor camps have pretty much not gone away at all. They've been renamed as compulsory isolation drug detox centers. The name just is so eerie. It makes me almost laugh uncomfortably every time I hear it. Are they really, <laughs> are they really in drug rehab? <laughs> compulsory isolation. Yeah. yeah. No, no, not at all. I actually visited um, some of these facilities and the guards at the drug detox, so-called drug detox centers, and the guards will call these places prisons okay. over and over again in our conversation. Towards the end, I asked them, wait, is this a prison or a drug detox center? And they had to stop and think about it and say, oh, no, this is a drug detox center. <laughs> um, you know, and it looks exactly the same as it did before it got changed into drug detox center. There's barbed wires everywhere. There's just a lot of guards walking around. You don't see any people coming in and out that are actually like families coming to visit or anything like that. It seems, it looks very much like a prison. Mm -hmm. um, and they sell all kinds of products there. And the guards, there are almost less guards, but more like businessmen. They, they, you know, I told them I want, was from, I was with a foreign company that wanted to buy from them and they were so friendly. They told me all about the products they made inside. Mm -hmm. And really they, they were more like salespeople than, than guards. They, they, they were very, you know, it really shocked me just how used to they were to selling to foreign companies and how comfortable they were with that. Um, I spent a lot of time just waiting outside of these camps and following the freight trucks that left mm -hmm. to see exactly which manufacturers they were working with. And, you know, they went to all kinds of exporters, um, including an Apple factory. And 
um, I looked at the customs records for that particular factory and they are exporting to US, they're exporting to Central America, they're exporting to Europe. And, you know, these products made in so-called closed camps are really still camps and they're really still going all over the world. So do you have a, a sense of how much of the goods coming out of China is made with um, prison labor? It's really hard to say. I wish because we don't have any big hard data. We just have these little bits of data coming from different organizations and different journalists who have been able to track them down here and there. I mean, we don't have a, a database that the government, that the Chinese government releases that we can trust. So okay. it's really hard to say. Some estimate maybe 20%, um, but uh, it's hard because what counts, a lot of times something might not be fully made in a, in a forced labor prison. It could just be the raw materials or it could just be the packaging or it could just be mm -hmm. one component. Mm, yeah, but it's really hard to say exactly how much of the supply chain is tainted. See, so another um, horrific practice in China that you mentioned in your book is organ harvesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right, um, survivors um, and family members who've gotten their loved ones um, corpses afterward have have said they see they tend to see some weird scars uh, and some. That, that seemed to suggest that the organs have been have been taken from these prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, so that leads many people to suspect that they were executed for the express purpose of uh, for the for their organs to be to be sold. Mm -hmm. um, also, you mentioned too some of the prisoners that are taken in for medical exams, just unknown for whatever reason that they don't know about. Right, right. It's it's very strange, and they're not um, given any updates about what were the results of their exams. And mm -hmm. there are other there are many instances where they've been injured in the camps, or they've been tortured and injured, and they didn't receive medical um, treatment. So it's very odd that they will suddenly get medical treatment sometimes for an exam. Okay. Most of them not. Yeah. Um, so an underlying theme of your book is that. Um, is, is how the Chinese engage in civil disobedience in China and how dangerous that is. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right, right. It's, unfortunately, there's not a large part of the Chinese population that is engaging in any kind of civil disobedience or even willing to read news that wasn't published by the Chinese government because it's just too risky. I mean, mm -hmm. it's... So the situation in China has changed so much since the Tiananmen protests in 1989. Mm -hmm. When you used to see, you know, student protesters walking around the street, they're not so, just the way that they spoke and their hopes for their future was not so different from, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters you see today in the U.S. You know, they're really, there really was a sense that China was moving towards a democracy. Um, and that so many people were fighting for and so many people cared about. Mm -hmm. But today in China, if you talk to anyone, including young people, um, no, there's, there's a uniform opinion that um, democracy, the Western concept of democracy is not for China um, due to China's different um, cultural historical experiences.
mm-hmm. um, and to any kind of discussion about democracy, pro-democracy activism is U.S. propaganda. That seemed to be a widely believed um, concept around uh, that most people have accepted. So there's really a very, very small percentage of people that's even willing to take up this, this fight for a freer China. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that uh, some they call them citizen journalists um, who were reporting on COVID-19 in Wuhan. Um, they've been jailed um, and received sentences for speaking up um, and telling the truth about um, um, COVID. So it, in, in the course of researching for this book and doing uh, investigative journalism in, in China, did you encounter these citizen journalists? You know, I was too afraid to contact them directly while I was in China. I communicated with them when when I was when I was in the U.S. Uh, electronically, mm-hmm. um, because I didn't want to go to China and bring them trouble. Mm-hmm. But yes, they they are still around and they are um, putting great risk to their own lives to raise awareness to various issues, including something as important as real information about COVID infections in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. It's very unfortunate that a lot of the journalists have been sentenced to prison uh, for mm-hmm. reporting on COVID uh, originally. Um, and, you know, if they're not held in isolation, then they're probably doing forced labor and making goods for people like us. Mm-hmm. Um, also, too, in uh, Hong Kong, something like 50 pro-democracy activists have been arrested. So I, I think for our American audience, you know, we're so used to having rights. It's all in the First Amendment, right? Right to free speech, right to assembly, right to, you know, have civil rights, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about how, how different it is in China? Just to give our American audience a, an understanding. Yes, absolutely. Even it's a huge difference between Hong Kong and, and, China, and mainland China. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a lot of people in Hong Kong who, who will talk about um, civil rights and, and advocating for that. But in China, they, it's like speaking an entirely different language. They see it all as um, so-called U.S. propaganda. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They, they uh, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them have, have seen and experienced the trauma of events like the Cultural Revolution. So mm-hmm. to this generation and the generations that came after um, they just want a stable life. They just mm-hmm. want to be able to earn money and have be able to put food on the table um, and not get sent to prison arbitrarily. If you, They just want to stay in line. Mm-hmm. I think civil rights is just not really a high priority on a lot of their, a lot of these people's minds at the moment. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to touch on Um, what is it like to engage in investigative journalism in China as a foreigner and how this is different than from the United States or in Europe, for example? Right. Yes. Um, when I, when I was preparing to go to China, I had to think a lot about whether I wanted to go on a journalism visa or Mm -hmm. a tourism visa. And if you're doing if I'm going to do journalism in Europe, I'm definitely going to go on a journalism visa. You know, you have a lot more protections mm-hmm. um, and there's no really, a lot of times the, the publication and the publisher would, would want you to, and there's no real reason not to. Mm-hmm. But in China, it's a very different story. 
Um, if you go on a journalism visa, it automatically flags you to the police. So the moment you arrive, you're going to get followed. You're going to get stopped a lot. You're going to be, you're going to probably be held in detention um, just to, just to waste your time and prevent you from getting any reporting done. Um, and it's while you have a lot of protections as a foreign journalist in China with the, on a journalism visa, it, you really have to find very um, creative ways to trick the police. I know one reporter who said he would book hotels in multiple cities and or multiple counties at the same time to confuse the police about where he was staying that night. <laughs> and just you have to do things like that to get around. Um, uh, I ultimately decided to go on a tourism visa mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't get tracked and that worked. Um, I went, I stuck to, I stuck, I stuck pretty closely to big tourist sites. For example, uh, Qingpu, Shanghai, which is, um, which people say is known as the Venice of China. It's this beautiful water town, ancient water town, mm -hmm. but just, you know, a 10 minute drive away, there's a whole compound of labor camps, you know, you know, you, you just drive 10 minutes away and you see guards, you see the barbed wires and, you know, it's, it, you really don't have to even wander far to, to come across them. Mm -hmm. um, so since you went on a tourist visa, um, were you fearful of, you know, if they found out you're doing actually journalism instead of tourism, um, were you feel fearful that you would be detained or imprisoned or anything like that? Um, I was nervous, <laughs> but I, but I, I was pretty sure that even if I got detained, I, I, I would have been fine in the end. They probably, um, would not have actually sentenced me to prison in China. They, they, I don't think they've ever done that to a foreign journalist. Mm -hmm. Um, even if you are not on a tourist, a journalist visa, but they, they will try to scare you and they might even beat you up a little bit, but they're not going to. Um, kill you the way that they might to that they could to a citizen journalist who's a Chinese national. So I felt I was in a better position to do reporting on this than than a lot of other people in China. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to uh, ask you about that since you I mean you look Chinese right <laughs> were you taken as a native in doing this? Yes, yes. Um, I went there and I spoke Chinese with the I spoke, I spoke Mandarin with the guards, and mm -hmm. they couldn't really tell that I was um, uh, from uh, I was a foreigner. <laughs> so, so I got I got lucky. I just just passed passed through. Yeah. Do you think that you got more information that way because you didn't look like a foreigner or sound like a foreigner? Yes, yes, they, they were not guarded at all when they talked to me, which surprised me just how much information these guards reveal to me when you show up at the campsites. A complete stranger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I, I also wanted to ask you, um, so part of the narrative of your book includes how mass consumerism is contributing to climate change. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well as the movement for more sustainable and ethical consumption? And um, how do we as a society foster that? Absolutely. That's a great point. I think anybody who cares about climate change should care about the labor camps in China because these are large, large factories that a lot of them are not being tracked in terms of their whether they're meeting emission standards or not, how much emissions they're contributing uh, 
to the atmosphere. And they absolutely need to be tracked in order to, to realistically uh, reduce emissions for, the, for, for our Earth. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned that uh, there's some generational differences, like baby boomers have different consuming um, patterns than Gen Zers and, and millennials. Um, and you talk about this in your book. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, there's definitely a change, a generational shift where you see a lot of the younger people like the Gen Z populations that are a lot more interested in um, ethical consumption. They're actually willing to pay higher prices um, if they knew, did they could know that it was ethically made. Um, they're they're still buying cheap goods from stores like Forever 21. Um, by all means, they still are. But that's not the only goods they're buying. Um, they're even willing to shop less um, and buy one really expensive thing that's well made. This is a huge difference from the previous generations, which was all about buying as many cheap things as you can. Mm -hmm. um, so you mentioned some companies in your uh, uh in your book, and they they all seem to be related to fashion, like Forever Twenty One, H and M, um, even Target. All these fast fashion companies. Um, is there any push to have these fast fashion companies, you know, um, adopt standards for themselves? I think so, and I think they try to say that they are already are doing this. Even the fast fashion companies like H and M do list like their complete list of suppliers. Um, mm -hmm. to make them look sustainable. But again, that is, it doesn't do enough to just list your list of suppliers because companies like H&M are still, we're still, we've found SOS letters associated with, with their products. Um, for example, in, in two, as, as late as 2019, um, there was an SOS letter discovered in a product. Um, oh, actually, this was, this was discovered in, a box of Christmas cards, and it was from Qingpu Prison, mm -hmm. um, which is where I went to in Shanghai to look at the camps. And and that that prison was also associated with H and M. So we know we have a lot of evidence that this particular prison is exporting products from all these different brands. And there was actually a former prisoner who um, witnessed H and M logos being made in that prison. Um, and, you know, he tried to contact H&M. I've tried to contact H&M about it. Mm -hmm. And all they say is they are unable to find evidence. They, they have not really told me much about if they've changed their business practices, if they even looked into which business practices contributed to, you know, their product being seen in a, in a prison camp. Um, mm -hmm. And just... Um, you know, maybe 15, 10 to 15 minutes away from this Chinku prison is an H&M factory. Wow. Um, and you go there, yeah, and you talk to the guards. I mean, not the guards, you talk to the workers there and they say, oh, we subcontract a lot of our our, our, our products and we, we don't know exactly where. So I I would find it hard to believe that H&M really isn't, doesn't have any prison labor in their supply chain. And even though they list their factories. So I think fast fashion companies really need to do a lot more to, to try to 
source sustainably. Um, and it's not just fast fashion companies, but also ultra fast fashion companies that we're seeing these days. You know, companies like um, Boohoo and ASOS, they're a new breed that with they don't have brick and mortar stores. So they're only online and they can just get things up even faster um, and change the trends even faster. And so that in turn reduces the production time even more and further contributes to encouraging factories to outsource work to forced laborers. Wow. Um, so you mentioned in your book that uh, like Gen Zers and millennials, they're not so brand conscious, conscious as, you know, uh, as other generations are. So for instance, you know, I go on Amazon and I, you know, I'm looking for a dress, for example, and I find a ton of dresses and they all have these kind of strange names. They're all Chinese made, right? Um, so, you know, um, I guess it's so prevalent. It just seems so prevalent. Like all the products come out of China, everything comes out of China, right? So, um, I just want to circle back to the point, what can we do as consumers? Because it's, it just seems to me overwhelming. It seems that everything comes out of China. What can I do as a consumer? Um, it's very, very difficult, I think, to find anything that doesn't come out of China. Yes, um, I think we need to start going on Facebook and going on Twitter and asking these companies, can mm -hmm. you reveal how, you're, how exactly you're sourcing from these factories? Mm -hmm. how, you're, how, how are you doing your audits? How much are you paying for audits? What kind of things are you looking for in your audits? Um, do you actually give your factories enough time to make these products? What happens if you want to make a production change because the trends are changing? Do you give your factories an extension or do you not? And mm -hmm. they have no choice but to make it really fast turnaround. That's not actually possible. Um, these are the questions we can ask companies. And if there's enough of us going on Twitter, going on Facebook to ask, Mm -hmm. um, they're going to have to respond and change some of their policies because the last thing any corporation wants is our viral social media posts um, saying that they're not being sustainable. Okay. That's great. Um, so you also mentioned, so there was a specific um, uh, uh, NGO that was run by Harry Wu, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, can you talk about his organization? Is it still, is it still operating? Right, it's the Law Guy Research Foundation, which was the original NGO doing research on, on the forced labor goods coming out of China. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they have not been doing much since uh, Mr. Wu passed away. Um, he was he was quite old. He, he was in his 80s and just, mm -hmm. you know, he was so dedicated to the cause that he didn't even think that his time might be up or have a successor in hand. And mm -hmm. so the organization kind of just fell apart after what I've been told from people who have left the organization, it fell apart after his death. Um, so they're not ar around doing much th these days, but the good news is we have a lot of other organizations stepping up in light of the Uyghur camps, including uh -huh. the um, Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, mm -hmm. They re released a very good report documenting um, 82 big global corporations that are sourcing from Uyghur Uyghur forced laborers through mm -hmm. the Uyghur labor transfer program. And mm -hmm. these included, you know, very expensive companies, including BMW and Mercedes-Benz. Oh, wow. So the, a lot of times the problem isn't even because the product is too cheap, but the companies are not 
they have the money and the resources to do better, but mm-hmm. nobody is actually pushing them to do better. Mm-hmm. And that would have to come from consumers, right? Um, so I know that there are a number of Uyghur activists who are basically in exile. They live in the United States or elsewhere, um, and they can't go home really. But um, is there a way that the Chinese government can pressure these activists who are living abroad? Oh, yes. Um, a lot of them have received threats um, to these kinds of activists who are very um, vocal abroad. They've mm-hmm. received strange calls from their families who are still living in Xinjiang saying, please stop, you know, you're endangering our lives. Mm-hmm. It's a tough situation by, by speaking out about what's happening. You are, you know, making it difficult for your family members in Xinjiang. And that's something I think about a lot because I am, I'm actually part Uyghur mm-hmm. and um, I'm trying to look for, unfortunately, my family has assimilated as Han Chinese completely and we've lost touch with um, our Uyghur relatives in Xinjiang. Oh, wow. But I'm trying to find them and if I can find out who they are and if they're okay or not, and if I find out some of them are in camps, I have to really think about what can I do should I try to speak out and help get them out and make improve their situations? Or would that be endangering um, the relatives that are not in camps and putting them in camps? Because the Chinese government is going to respond by pressuring me to stop talking by putting more of my relatives in camps. Mm-hmm. So it's really a tough, a tough call about how, when to speak out and what to say at what point. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about some of the conditions in the Xinjiang camps? Um, you know, the the kind of typical re-education that uh, people are receiving at these camps. Right. Um, the difference between these re-education camps and something like a drug detox center is that everyone there has to learn Chinese. Mm-hmm. They have to sing patriotic songs, like praising Xi Jinping every day. Um, they have to basically dismiss and erase their Uyghur ethnic identity and culture. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of them have to get forcibly sterilized um, in these camps. And if they resist, they are tortured. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of these camps is basically to eradicate their ethnicity. Is that right? Essentially, uh, China wants to, the Chinese policymakers have themselves said they would like to see a state, a single state race and having a Uyghur ethnicity really takes away from that. Mm -hmm. So I know that the Chinese government, they've said that, you know, the purpose of these re-education camps is because to prevent terrorism, right? So is there any evidence that there are significant Uyghur terrorism going on in Xinjiang? I don't think so. There, there were some small, small scale violent attacks, but they, um, this is not a counter-terrorism campaign because it targets way too many people. You have elderly people being arrested, elderly women, even children that are forced to separate from their parents. Um, mm-hmm. It's terror, it's, this is just, the U.S. government itself has said that this is not a counterterrorism strategy. It's simply too broad. Mm-hmm. So there's just no national security purpose in doing this for no, China? Not at all. Okay. Um, I was just curious, have you been to Xinjiang? I wanted to go 
during my reporting, but I was warned not to by um, fellow journalists in China who said, you're not going to be able to get anything done. You're just going to get arrested when, once you get there and follow the entire time. Mm -hmm. um, even people who go, even people who are not journalists who are going there on tourism visas, who are actual tourists, are being followed the entire time if you're a foreigner in Xinjiang. Um, so I unfortunately did not go to Xinjiang, but would very much like to uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, I've heard that in Xinjiang, there's police stops um, practically at every intersection. So it's, it's pretty impossible to travel around Xinjiang at all. Yes, yes, I've heard that as well. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have to just rely on satellite imagery to document the expansion mm -hmm. of the camps, um, which is what we're seeing a lot of these days. Mm -hmm. um, even though you're an American and you live in America, um, do you expect any threats either from the Chinese government um, uh, because of what you've written about China? I'm not expecting personal threats to me uh, that would actually endanger my life in the U.S., but I, I, I am, I've been thinking about it and I'm very concerned about my family in China, how mm -hmm. this would impact them. And I just want to say they had nothing to do with this book. They don't even really know what I've been working on. So okay. it would be a shame if they, if they got um, hurt in any way. Um, so um, I just want to conclude by asking you, so for Americans like ourselves, um, you've written this fantastic book. It's, it's shocking. I mean, the, the practices that you document in there are horrific. Um, but for Americans like ourselves, having grown up in the U.S., um, why should we care about this issue? Because I think the way that we buy products and what we choose to buy can directly influence um, whether a factory will use this kind of forced labor or whether they will use regular workers that they're paying properly. So mm -hmm. we do have a say in how our companies are sourcing from these factories and how their factories are actually doing business. So that's why we should care. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, that was a fantastic conversation. And I think you've really shown a light on an issue that needs a lot of light on it. So um, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Professor Bennett. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwatch podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you got your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.